Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Is there opportunity in emerging market debt? Here to help us understand what's going on is Kathleen Gaffney, co-director of Diversified Fixed Income for Eaton Vance, helping to manage more than $400 billion, of which more than $70 billion is in fixed income assets for customers. She is normally based in Boston, but joins us here in our 1130 studios. Kathleen, thank you very much for being here. Make the case for being bullish on emerging market debt. Well, you've got growing populations, very strong growth. We know that China is important to global growth, and their response so far to the trade headlines has been easing. Not inflationary, monetary easing, opening up the spigots, but directed, targeted infrastructure investments and tax cuts. It's the great benefit of command and control. China's growing, continuing to build relationships on the Silk Road. We just saw them uh, support South Africa with funding there and Brazil in the soybean market. All right. So have you recently been adding to your EM holdings? Well, we've got a fair amount of exposure already. Uh, And so on any given day when the dollar is strong, we may add add on there. But in general, we're very comfortable with where we're positioned in both Latin America and Asia. Okay, so on those days where the dollar does strengthen, meaning often these emerging market currencies weaken and the uh, the the bonds that are denominated in these local currencies lose value, which which countries are you targeting specifically? That's a really good question because it's not that emerging markets are attractive in a broad-based way, the asset class, because the dollar's probably going to see further strength as interest rates go up in the near term, and that's going to be painful for some countries. But Mexico and Brazil, which really got pummeled uh, over the last 12 to 18 months, partly due to the election here in the U.S. and the concerns about NAFTA and Brazil, rightly so, with all the corruption. But they're in a counter trend right now because Mexico has actually rallied significantly since the Mexican peso, since AMLO uh, won with a very large mandate. And Brazil also seems to have gotten its footing as well. So those are good examples of two emerging nations that are striving to become more mainstream and serve their populations well. Is there a confrontation between what investors want in emerging markets, which might be dollar-denominated debt, and the ability of emerging markets to actually repay that debt because of the strength of the U.S. dollar? For some countries, that is clearly going to be a problem. I think I saw a headline this morning that Venezuela is looking at. My my eyes did a double take, a million percent inflation. Yeah, inflation. That was correct. It, you know, there's there's a right way to manage economies and there's a wrong way. Let me and guess. That's the wrong way. Yes. Okay. I think so. <laughs> uh, but 
that is the key to countries that are doing it right is access to capital is everything. Is Turkey doing it right? I was going to just <laughs> ask that. Uh, Turkey is not doing it right. And those are good examples of where the strongman, the autocracy is not working. Uh, and in general, that doesn't necessarily work. Although what China's doing with command and control is an example of getting it right for now. Okay, so I want to ask about Turkey. It's been a falling knife. Mm -hmm. And now there was a story on the Bloomberg this morning uh, talking about one hedge fund, uh, Promeritum Investment Management, which is starting to tiptoe into... Turkish debt. Wow, your eyes. I wish I could I could show people the look in your eyes of horror. I'm assuming that's not you. <laughs> I don't have that much confidence uh, yet. And uh, the risk reward overall, how that would impact uh, the multi-sector income fund, it's not a, a, it's not a good fit. I can see why uh, someone might take that side that there may be maybe limited downside. Turkey is close to the European market. Yeah. That's important. But I don't see a rationale for Erdogan uh, reversing course anytime soon. What's your highest conviction contrarian bet right now? Oh, gee, that's that's a good question. I, I think it's got to be Brazil because Brazil doesn't have enough momentum right now. It's going to be an interesting election. We've got some work to do, but there are incentives. Pension reform is very necessary, but doesn't need to be done in the very near term. So you could see some negative news hit Brazil, but I think longer term, the size of the country, the economy and the population and how important those resources are to the rest of the world, it's going to get there. We have just about 20 seconds left. Real quick, 10-year treasury yields. Where are they going to end the year? 350. Really? Oh, I, who knows? Maybe not <laughs> Maybe not the end of this year. Maybe it'll be the end of next year. But they're going up. All right. There you go. Kathleen Gaffney, always wonderful having you on. Thank you so much for being here. Kathleen Gaffney is co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance. She's normally in Boston, but she swept in here on this lovely rain-filled day in New York City to be with us here in our 1130 studios. 350, Pim. That's a lot higher than it is now. I, it's just a fascinating thing right now to think about. Are they going up? Are they going down? Where are we heading? Well, we want to visit with David Garrity. He is the chief executive of GVA Research. They are based in wonderful Brooklyn, New York. And you can follow David on Twitter, as we all do, at GVA Research. All right, GVA Research. We want to know about Facebook. What do you believe investors want to know about when the company reports results after the close? People are going to look at one metric primarily, which is what's the growth going to be in terms of their daily and monthly active users. Now, the company had already indicated earlier in the month that um, with the European Union's uh, 
imposition of the GDPR regulations, the general data privacy regulation, that there might be some pareback in terms of those numbers. Uh, but certainly it's not something that's had any effect on the stock uh, for all intents and purposes as it's been breaking out to all-time highs ahead of the earnings results after the close today. And uh, people are also focusing on Instagram, correct, and the revenues that are coming from that? Certainly there are expectations that Facebook, uh, in terms of trying to monetize some of its other properties, uh, Instagram certainly has been significant given the fact that younger users seem to be moving off of Facebook and going on to other properties such as Instagram. Uh, there's also been interest over time as to how is the company going to be leveraging uh, their WhatsApp messaging platform as well. And that's something that probably still remains further down the road. You don't sound all that bullish. Or am I missing something? Uh, I mean, my thinking is that uh, you know, the while people's expectations or fears around GDPR uh, certainly spiked around the end of May or going into the imposition of GDPR, it's something that's going to take time to implement. And I think that some of these shifts that we're seeing in terms of the younger demographics off of Facebook probably serve to dampen the forward growth rate. We just haven't seen those numbers start to come through yet. Uh, there are other platforms out there, I think, in the tech space. Uh, that are Such probably, as? Uh, say, for example, Amazon with their move towards using their platform for advertising. I think Amazon trying to leverage its user base, what they know about their user base, what they can deliver in terms of advertising targeting is going to prove potentially to be you know equal to, if not superior to what Facebook can do. And I think um, that a lot of the news flow that certainly we've seen coming off of social media over the past number of years uh, and, and intensifying earlier this year um, about Facebook and how they have not really regarded privacy or personal information at a very high level certainly serves to work against them. I mean, it is a flywheel, Facebook, yeah. and it has ramped up to a fairly high speed, and they've been getting great gains in terms of internet advertising market share. Uh, but I think the underpinnings for it over time weaken. This is this is fascinating because it starts to uh, raise the question of you know how many big behemoth tech companies can continue to be advertising companies versus do something else and you know when you talk about Amazon they're going to report earnings after the bill on Thursday and I am very curious to see their cloud computing services uh, unit the AWS uh, particularly in light of what we saw from Microsoft and Google with an acceleration uh, in revenues and clients and people saying that's a real growth driver. What's your expectation there for uh, Amazon? I mean, coming off of Microsoft's Azure performance, which was seeing growth up, you know, mid 80s, 80, 85 percent uh, year over year. Um, granted, uh, Amazon's Amazon Web Services, AWS, is about three times the size of what Microsoft has, about six and a half billion dollar annual revenue run rate. Um, you know, certainly Amazon wants investors to focus on that by having broken out the financials over the past couple of years. And uh, a business that is that profitable, 40 percent plus margins, growing for Amazon, probably some in the area of about 45 to 50 percent a year is a very nice value driver. People obviously have always had questions around Amazon's valuation uh, just because of their continual reinvestment of profits into their business. I think when you have businesses like AWS, which is a computing platform, which more and more businesses are gravitating towards, um, that having that as a significant driver of future results is significant for the stock. Do people make it too complicated when they think about investing in Amazon? Uh, 
You know, because they talk about, you know, whether the company's going to show, you know, greater net income growth or what their margins are. And then they talk about the purchase of Whole Foods and yeah. moving into different areas. But I mean, is it really just not complicated here when you well, look at Amazon? I mean, I mean, Amazon, in a way, has been essentially the, the counter example to value oriented investing, probably since it went public. Or rational uh, and, investing, and, and, right? Well, I mean, because it's loses, it can lose money, it can make money. It's yeah. like tweaking. The machine. Well, yeah, Benjamin Grant would be vomiting into a toilet if he had to look at the metrics associated with Amazon. But clearly, when we look at Amazon as investors, we need to think more like venture capitalists. We need to think about what are the size of the sectors into which they're moving, what's the addressable market, what's their likely market share. Clearly, Amazon has followed quarter after quarter by putting more arrows in the quiver, more markets they're going into. The fact that the Whole Foods acquisition over a year, put, year ago put them closer to the consumer, not just in terms of information, but also in terms of location, serves to strengthen Amazon's bond with the consumer and potentially their ability to extract more dollars from their competitors. And that clearly has worked to the benefit of the shareholders. Real quick, 30 seconds, a year from now, are we going to be talking about ag rather than fang? Are we going to be talking about Amazon, Apple, and Google, uh, Facebook a little bit less so, and Netflix out of the picture? I don't necessarily want to you know, give a death knell to Facebook because uh, you know, clearly they do have a significant audience. You don't lose $2 billion, $2 billion active users uh, overnight. Um, but I think things to start to slow. And I would say, yes, the ones that are stronger, better positioned, continue to be Amazon, I think continue to be Google, Alphabet. Uh, and I, would, I wouldn't count out Netflix. I mean, Netflix certainly is on a tear. And certainly you have Disney, you know, ponying up, you know, $70 billion to try to be a more effective Netflix competitor. And when you start looking at the awards that have been coming out relative to Netflix generated content, they've now in the most recent Emmy Award season surpassed um, HBO. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for being with us. David Garrity, Chief Executive of GVA Research, talking about those tech earnings that have been rolling in over the past few weeks. Well, as AT&T shares sink to a six-year low as their wireless growth comes in uh, below expectations, it's an important question to ask, who are their, who is their competitor? Who is their main competitor? Is it just Verizon or are there others? And joining us now is a competitor. Rick Calder joins us now. He's president and chief executive of GTT Communications based in McLean, Virginia. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Rick, uh, can you just sort of give us an overview of, of what GTT is and how quickly it's really been growing recently? Sure. I mean, Lisa, <coughs> excuse me. We provide cloud networking services to large and multinational clients. And we, you know, we're just talking about, I've been here 11 years and then the business started at uh, 50 million and it was uh, comprised of two original companies, both of which actually had uh, no assets whatsoever. And we were an integrator to provide cloud networks to large multinational corporations. And last quarter, we completed, we're about a billion dollars in revenue and we're well on our pace to 2 billion, but people don't know who we are, right? So it's one of the interesting things in our business is that most people think they can only buy cloud network services from the large 
multinational firms like AT&T and Verizon, we're here to say we can compete. We clearly can provide an alternative solution to large multinationals. And uh, we think we're arriving on the stage to be able to do that against BT, Verizon, AT&T, CenturyLink and the like that have historically dominated this market. I'm trying to figure out where we should start. Should we maybe do a definition of what is a tier one network? Sure. Tier one, I mean, the internet was, uh, was a, you know, originally, it's probably a 30-year-old innovation that is clearly here to stay. And over time, there have been a series of tier one backbones that are settlement-free and peer with each other to allow traffic from end-user locations to get to any application in the cloud. And that comprises almost half of our business at this stage to be a tier one internet backbone to help corporations reach any application anywhere in the world. So it's an interesting time to be significantly expanding in this area because we've seen AT&T and Verizon struggling to uh, increase both their footprints and their uh, wireless subscribers. How do you do this in a way that isn't capital intensive at a time when you know, you've got 5G developing and getting, uh, getting built up and it's expensive? Well, interestingly, one of the things we see with the big incumbents is that they are first and foremost consumer mobile companies. And they have switched their focus to be consumer mobile companies away from serving the large cloud network needs of corporations and large corporations around the globe. That is a capital intensive business, buying spectrum, building and leasing towers, uh, building fiber to towers, very capital intensive business. We've actually, in terms of focusing our business on large multinationals, have made it uh, CapEx light in two ways. One, we've purchased over time and acquired one of the largest global tier one internet backbones underpinned by one of the largest fiber footprints across Europe, the US and the Atlantic uh, to be able to enable us to reach every location in the world on behalf of our uh, uh, large multinational clients. And we lease the last local loop piece from every carrier in the world. And so we trade actively with three 3,000 last mile, last local loop provider to be, be get diverse, secure access to every location in the world. Rick, so far this year, three acquisitions, I believe, right? You've closed the custom connect, accelerated connections, interroute communications. What's the criteria for GTT to go out and make an acquisition besides strategic fit and all that kind of stuff because you guys really you have a an acquisition record yeah we've done well over uh, 30 acquisitions at this stage as you noted we've completed three right now uh, you took the words out of my mouth absolutely has to be strategic fit number one uh, where we are hewing to our strategy of focused on cloud networking services to large multinationals. Two, we have to be able to integrate quickly. And we don't look at an acquisition if we can't integrate it within one to two quarters. And that's very different from most corporations who think in one to two to three years. So generally, we integrate across our organization, our systems, our network within one to two quarters, and be able to deliver a post-synergy EBITDA multiple to our investors within two quarters post-close. And so those are the three criteria, and we've been able to execute very effectively on that over the past several years. How big is the market for uh, corporate connectivity to the cloud? Uh, we, we estimate the market at somewhere between 250 and 400 billion dollars in terms of the amount of 
money that large multinationals across the world spend on cloud networking services. So as we approach our next financial objective of being a $2 billion corporation, we still represent under 1% of the market. And most interestingly, in a market where every multinational that we speak to as we walk into them says, I need more connectivity. There's clearly more internet connections going on in every corporation. Most corporations are moving their IT applications into the cloud, and most corporations have increasing size of files that they're trying to transfer across their organization to connect their people. So they all are dissatisfied with their connection today and need more, and that's our opportunity is to displace the incumbent. Who's the biggest challenger right now? The biggest challenger to us, I mean, we still focus on the incumbent. Yes, there are like firms like GTT. Frankly, we think many of them create great acquisition opportunities because we think scale is important. Even at $2 billion, we're still relatively small in this market share. So we have our eyes squarely focused on ATT, Verizon, CenturyLink, BT, Orange Business Services, Deutsche Telekom. We think those uh, uh, form the basics. And what we love about it is that they're not focused on our business. Well done. We're focused on listening to you and much appreciated. Rick Calder, President, Chief Executive, GTT Communications. They're based in McLean, Virginia. You know, Pim, we're talking so much these days about the trading relationship with the U.S. and China. But, you know, I did not realize that trade with China was at the heart of America's wealth more than 100 years ago and made some of the most prominent families in the, uh, in the U.S. And joining us now to talk about that is Stephen Ujifusa. He is the author uh, of Barons of the Sea, a new book out talking about just this trend. So, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Can we just start with with how much, how important China and trade with that country was to uh, creating sort of the new millionaires and billionaires uh, of the time, perhaps more than 100 years ago? Well, uh, the uh, China trade for 19th century, early 19th century New England was a crucial part of building up family fortunes, uh, names that uh, still are recognizable today, such as uh, Delano, Forbes, uh, low. These are families that made their money in the China trade and starting in the 1840s uh, began building some of the early clipper ships. These were very fast uh, three-masted vessels built for speed rather than capacity. And this was a trade that was uh, – tea was a primarily export item uh, from China. But to pay for the tea, these Yankee merchants would uh, smuggle in opium from India and from Turkey. And this led to uh, one of the first international conflicts, arguably the first major international conflict between uh, China and uh, the West was the first Opium War of the late 1830s and 1840s. Would it be inaccurate to describe these American sea captains, these barons, as a drug cartel? Well, there were several American firms which uh, did deal in uh, opium. And, and yes, it could be described as a an early drug cartel. Of Out of all the American firms based in uh, uh, Canton, modern-day Guangzhou, only one refused to deal in opium. Uh, this was Oliphant and Company, a Quaker company, and the other merchants uh, sort of laughed at them, calling them Zion's Corner. Now, opium was replaced by gold as the big commodity, correct? 
Well, uh, gold uh, was what basically set off the race to build even bigger and faster clipper ships starting in 1849 uh, when gold was discovered in California. And uh, the small, ch the smaller China clippers, which uh, set records, for example, the sea, which traveled from China to New York in the record-breaking time of 74 days, when before that, uh, 150 days was considered to be a good passage. Uh, the discovery of gold in California prompted merchants like Warren Delano to redeploy their clippers to go around Cape Horn to San Francisco. And uh, these clipper ships set records. Uh, for example, the Flying Cloud of 1851 sailed between New York and San Francisco around Cape Horn in 89 days, uh, 21 hours. And then a few years later, she broke that record. And that was a time when six to seven months was considered to be a respectable voyage around the Horn. So this fueled a round-the-world trade, which basically a clipper ship would leave from New York, sail around Cape Horn, stop in San Francisco, drop off its cargo of dry goods that were used to build the city of San Francisco, sail across to China, pick up a cargo of tea, and then sail around the Cape of Good Hope for home for a tremendous profit. So, Stephen, uh, I'm sure – I. There are amazing stories, and, and you, you really outline them. Uh, scandal and all sorts of personalities that uh, make their name in this time. I'm wondering, can you talk about the barriers to trade? I, I mean, just to sort of, sort of create a parallel to what we're looking at right now. What were they then? Well, before the first Opium War, uh, China greatly restricted all sorts of access to uh, it's trading uh, networks. Uh, Westerners, particularly Americans and particularly the British, had a very strong demand for tea. And the, um, the Chinese saw the, uh, the arrival of these uh, fang kui, the foreign devils as they were called, as an inconvenience. And so they were confined up until the early 1840s to a very small uh, city, few city blocks of Canton known as the uh, foreigner's colony or the golden ghetto as was known. This was the only place where... Uh, uh, Western Europeans and Americans could live with the exception of the colony, Portuguese colony of Macau. And uh, it was the Chinese very tightly regulated uh, the tea trade. Only 12 or so Chinese merchants were allowed to do business with the, with the foreigners. And uh, the most prominent of whom was a man named Haokua, Wu Ping Chen, who uh, rose to become arguably the richest non-sovereign in the world because of his lock on the tea trade. Uh, he uh, was worth approximately $26 million in the 1830s, which made him the equivalent of uh, a Jeff Bezos or uh, a Warren Buffett in terms of his net wealth and power. And he informally adopted uh, a number of these young 20, 30-something-year-old uh, Yankee traders, such as Warren Delano and John Murray Forbes, uh, as his sons. And he did business with them exclusively. We're speaking with Stephen Ujifusa. He is the author of the new book, Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship. Uh, Stephen, you mentioned the Flying Cloud. This is a ship that was about 10, had a mast that was 10 stories high. Tell us about the captain. Captain Josiah Creasy was one of the most remarkable uh, sea captains of his time. And the Flying Cloud was his first extreme clipper command. Uh, he had had experience in the China trade, but had never commanded a vessel of this size or speed. And he had a very useful uh, helpmate in this uh, record-breaking voyage is that his, he brought his wife along, Eleanor uh, Creasy, who served as a navigator around uh, Cape Horn. And it was thanks to her and her uh, brilliance as a navigator that the ship was able to make that kind of record time. But he was known as what was called a pencil sharpener. He was known for 
uh, quote unquote, fudging his records in previous voyages or his day runs. But what is uh, indisputable is the record time she made uh, in, in September of 1851 when she sailed triumphantly into San Francisco and uh, thousands of people would run down to the waterfront to uh, see what goods she had brought in from the East Coast. Uh, this is a time when eggs sold for a dollar, and we're talking 1850s dollars, so that's like 20 bucks an egg. It, San Francisco was a boom town, so this was how merchants back East uh, and clipper ship owners made their money. But Josiah Perkins uh, Creasy, like a lot of these clipper ship captains, were – Tough personalities, extremely competitive. A lot of them had ownership stakes in these vessels. And speed was the primary object and uh, safety and uh, operation. Those are sort of secondary uh, considerations. What mattered was speed. I, it really a, a fabulous issue, and uh, you outlined it so well, Stephen Ujifusa, author of Barons of the Sea and Their Race to Build the World's Fastest Clipper Ship. Uh, he just, uh, just came out. He's also a historian. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.